The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome Mr. Andy Fisher. He has truly been a catalyst in the good food movement since about the mid-90s. He was the co-founder and former executive director of the Community Food Security Coalition, and he had that role from 1994 to 2011. He is now writing a book. It's an important book about how our hunger community is so wedded to corporate America. And it's an important story that needs to be told. Andy, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Melinda. Andy, I I need to ask you how you came to be interested in hunger. Sure. I was a graduate student at UCLA in urban planning in 1992, and I was much more focused on environmental issues and environmental justice issues. And when the Rodney King civil disturbances happened in 1992 in Los Angeles, and it galvanized myself and a number of other students to look in our own backyard to some of the issues that were going on there, we wanted to identify solutions that would support the community. There were alternatives to corporate-centered development, and we hit upon the food system. Six of us did a study for the food system in Los Angeles. I had hunger issues, public health, why there were no supermarkets in many neighborhoods in L.A., and what the alternatives were, things like farmer's markets and community gardens and the like. And we published a report. It got a lot of press, and from there it led me to realizing that food was really a great a great and wide open field it was a great it was a great uh vehicle for social change and i stuck with it now you are writing a book about how big corporations benefit from the way we deal with hunger in the united states how do we deal with hunger in the united states first of all you know since since i've been working in this field for about 20 years what i've seen even before the recent recession was entrenched hunger rates, rising inequality, diet-related diseases that were on the rise, things like obesity and diabetes, for example. And I've seen the anti-hunger movement struggle earnestly with these issues, but by and large, there's been a lack of innovation. Parts of the movement have really shied away from a social justice perspective, and often they've taken positions that have impeded change around obesity and around farm policy reform. Um, so there's been kind of a there's been kind of a a focus on short term solutions which have had a cost for uh, in the long term. And let, let me give you an example. I have a, a son who uh, was in third grade last year in Portland Public Schools here in Oregon. And like it happens in many places, they had a Christmas food drive for the local food bank. And I, I think the world of Oregon Food Bank, and they're one of the most progressive food banks around. But the, the, the competition was for, for which class could raise the most, most money and the most food, the heavy, the most pounds, uh, for the food bank. And so of course my son comes back and he's all excited about it and he says, I want the heaviest food. Give me all the heaviest food we can for, for this food drive. And, he, and, and I realized that that was kind of a microcosm of, of how food banks deal with, with the issue of hunger. They measure their success in the millions of pounds that they just, 
you know, and on one level, that's fine because people need food to, to keep themselves fed. I mean, because because there's such a such a hunger issue in this country. But on another level, um, the message that's being presented is, is completely wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, the, one of the messages is that the more food, the better. And it's not about the quality. Uh, it's not about how many people will we stop from coming to the food bank in the first place. It's it's managing the solution. It's not preventing hunger. And then the the solution is also it's about charity. Uh, the solution that's being presented it, it, again is about charity. It's not about government programs. It's not about food stamps or, or living wage or affordable health care or child care. It's kind of a neoliberal approach to dealing with hunger. It's about how charities can do things better than the government. So I kind of think of the of the of anti hunger advocates, and and I count myself kind of in this realm to some degree. As you know, as kind of almost hamsters in one of those exercise wheels. Mm-hmm. People are running harder and harder and harder just to keep up with the demand, just to keep going. And one of my colleagues in, in one of the local food bank, uh, who's in charge of the food donations, uh, told me that if we don't bend down the demand curve, we're doomed. In mm-hmm. other words, they can't keep up with demand. There's got to be a way to, to stop it. And it's not just about getting more, more and more food into the food bank. It's time to get off the wheel. Time to get off that, that hamster wheel and time to do some critical examination about how we're dealing with hunger in this country. Absolutely. Um, and why and so, we and, have hunger in the first place. Right. And so in terms of how this relates to corporations, you know, I, I've begun to realize uh, over the past few years that the, that the anti-hunger community's relationship to corporations is, is a real problem. And uh, I'll tell you a few, a few reasons why. One is because, especially in the food banking realm, probably about half of food bank board members are come from work at a corporation. About a fifth of the total food bank board members work for a Fortune 500 corporation. So there's some real vested interest there. And so there are fewer food banks in the country, maybe about 5% of them, that are working on living wage issues on and real anti-poverty issues, affordable housing, health care, child care, than there are uh, food banks that have board members who work for Walmart. So very few food banks, maybe 10 out of 200, are are really working on meaningful solutions to poverty. And the second part is that a lot of the donors to the food banking world and anti-hunger community in large are some of the worst actors. Uh, I did a look at the top 25 25 corporate donors, companies like ConAgra and Walmart and Bank of America and Wells Fargo, and many of them have some pretty serious, egregious labor practices, practices that harm minorities, that harm the environment, worker safety, uh, public health, and they are donating to clean up their reputation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and by taking their money, the anti-hunger community is helping them do so uh, and helping them continue to continue their practices. And then finally, that there's a missed opportunity here. The fact that a lot of our, our federal food programs, uh, the money from those federal food programs goes into the coffers of big ag, big food companies. It's, it's a missed opportunity to, to really support a democratic, more community-based economy. We're subsidizing the wrong guy. We are. Years ago, I worked on a hunger task force. And there was a social worker on that task force who opened my eyes to the hunger issue. And what she told me was that food stamps were really a subsidy to those businesses who were not paying a living wage. And Andy, I I had an aha moment. I had never thought of it that way. And I think 
it's really important that we have this conversation and that you write this book because we as citizens are not taught to think about all of the different aspects of hunger. And on your website, and I want to direct our listeners to part of the reason why we're doing this program is not only to talk about this topic, but also to let individuals know that you are raising money to help support the writing and research that goes behind a truly good investigative piece of work. So the book is called Hunger, Inc., and if our listeners go to Indiegogo.com backslash hunger dash incorporated, they will see a series of pieces that you've written. And I have one in front of me, and I just want to share a paragraph from that. So the title of this piece is called Contradictions in the Anti-Hunger Movement. And in this, you talk about the partnerships within the movement. And in particular, you bring up the issue of Walmart. And you talk about, just as you had mentioned, this greenwashing of philanthropy. And you talk about how Mr. Bailey, and let's see, Mr. Trey Bailey, he is Walmart's Senior Manager of Agriculture and Food. And he was a plenary speaker at the National Anti-Hunger Policy Conference in Washington. And you bring out the point that Mr. Bailey, what he didn't mention during his presentation was the fact that the average Walmart worker, of which there are 1.4 million in the United States, earns a measly $8.81 per hour. At this pay rate, a single parent with one child working full-time would qualify for food stamps. Therefore, the public tax dollars that go to food stamps are really subsidizing Walmart with billions of dollars to keep its employees productive, healthy, and free of hunger through these government and food and health care programs, yet the company crows about the millions of dollars it distributes to anti-hunger causes. So on the one hand, billions of dollars are going to subsidize Walmart's paltry wages, where they're saying, hey, wait, we're really good guys. We're giving millions of dollars to anti-hunger causes. That's right. And the, the other part of that that you didn't mention is that uh, Walmart also captures somewhere no one knows exactly because the, these figures aren't public uh, and they really should be. No one knows exactly how much of food stamps Walmart redeems every year. The, another Walmart senior staff person said in some states they redeem almost half of, of food stamps. And so, you know, the annual food stamp budget these days is over $70 billion. So we're talking somewhere around, perhaps around $30 billion a year that, that Walmart is redeeming. So it, it's a huge part of their of their business. Yeah. Uh, so they're obviously trying to protect their own business interests when they're out on in Washington lobbying for, for food stamps and also in supporting kind of the, the, the anti-hunger community to be better, better partners. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I also want to bring up the fact that Walmart is not alone. I mean, there are many other companies that will donate food products to food banks. And I wanted to ask you about how those corporations benefit from those food donations? Do they get a tax write-off on top of everything else? Absolutely. The way the way it works is that food companies get a tax write-off for their donations at halfway the, at the value of halfway between wholesale and retail. In other words, if their wholesale price for a product is a dollar, the retail price is two dollars, they'll get a tax write-off at a dollar fifty. Uh, so not only are they getting a tax, you know, a tax write-off, but they're also it's also double dipping in some ways because of that extra. They're able to 
get a write-off on that extra 50 cents of value. It almost seems like triple dipping. In Walmart's situation, they're getting the benefit of not having to pay their workers a living wage. And then the poor workers are going back and using their food stamps at the Walmart to buy their food. And then on top of that, any donations go back into the, the Walmart coffers as well. Exactly. I mean, if you consider philanthropy to be acts of goodwill towards other people that are altruistic in nature, uh, it's pretty hard to call Walmart's $2 billion commitment to fight hunger philanthropy. It's really about just protecting their strategic interests. Absolutely. They, they would do much better in fighting hunger if, if they pay their workers more, let them unionize and give them a, a significant raise, let them get health care, give them the hours to do so. That would be enormously more beneficial than throwing a billion dollars, and most of which is food, towards the anti-hunger, towards food banks. Mm-hmm. And, of course, those of us who work in the public health community have been very critical about what food stamps can buy and what they can't buy. So, on the one hand, we have this big debate in a recent article by Mark Bittman in the New York Times about the fact that food stamps can purchase soft drinks. And, of course, the the public health community is all up in arms about that. But you bring up a very important point, and that is something that we're not talking about, and that is what food stamps could do for our local sustainable food economies. So the last statistics I have, for example, is that there are now 7,000 farmers markets within the United States but less than 2,500 of them accept EBT, and these are the electronic benefit transfer cards, so that people don't go to the store anymore with coupons for food stamps. They go with these little plastic cards that look like a credit card. And they don't spend the same. You can't spend them everywhere, and you address that also in the book. Right, and that's a great point. Thanks for bringing that up. And that's kind of what I mean by a missed opportunity. Of that $70 billion that goes into food stamps, there's maybe about 10 to 15 million dollars, 10 to 15 million uh, that is being redeemed at farmers markets. And USDA has been, the Department of Agriculture has been you know, dragging their feet about allowing farmers markets and facilitating farmers markets to get the terminals and to get the support needed to be able to redeem food stamps. So there's a, you know, there's, like I said, a missed opportunity. Even if 1% of food stamps went into pockets of local farmers of these $700 million, that would be an enormous boon for the economy in Columbia, Missouri, and as well as rural areas around the country. Absolutely. I think that simply having a portion of those dollars infiltrating local farmers and local farm communities could make a tremendous difference, but in truth, the majority are going right back into the corporate coffers. I have a question about the Walmart issue, and that is when I go back and I want to analyze where food dollars are spent, we're always missing the Walmart data. That's not public. None of it's public. Actually, uh, Michelle Simon, a colleague of mine, wrote a great report last summer that laid bare the fact that it is not public information how food stamp money is being used. In other words, we do not know how much of the $7 billion is going to what companies, and we do not know what those product, that the products that food stamp recipients are buying that with those federal dollars. It's as if it were national security, uh, which clearly it's not. Uh, and that is done, well, I don't know why that is done, but the effect of it is that it protects the, the 
interests of the food companies. And, and to some degree, it protects the program itself as it doesn't allow critics to claim, well, X number of dollars are being spent to buy soda or food or, uh, or potato chips. Let's cut, the, let's cut the program. Right. Um, but, but at the same time, it doesn't allow a rational discussion uh, to talk about, well, what foods should be bought yeah. uh, and what foods are being bought. We, we just don't know. Um, it, it, it's really a problem. It's really a problem in analyzing the food stamp program and in making rational policy decisions. That's right. It, listeners, if you're just joining us, we are speaking with Andy Fisher. He has been a major catalyst of the good food movement since about the mid-90s. From 1994 to 2011, he was co-founder and executive director of the Community Food Security Coalition. And he's been a leader in looking at issues related to public health, anti-hunger movements, local food movements, and he's also been involved in the initiation of many of the farm-to-school projects. So we have a great amount of thanks to give to you, Andy. I want to thank you for all of your work. And now with your new book, Hunger Incorporated, I think this book has the potential to move a mountain. What do you hope to accomplish with the book? You know, my hopes are to uh, ignite a dialogue within the anti-hunger movement and more broadly within the food community about the nature of, of anti-hunger work and about um, how the anti-hunger community can recapture its social justice agenda. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, also equally importantly, about how it can build coalitions with public health, with the, with the broader uh, kind of good food movement, with labor groups, uh, to develop a, a more comprehensive progressive agenda uh, for food system reform that um, would address how we produce food, how we grow it, how we consume it in this country, above and beyond hunger, but dealing with obesity and dealing with income inequality as well. Mm-hmm. What I find really interesting is that there are some food programs that do limit what can be bought. And then we have food stamps, which really don't have the same limitations. I'm thinking specifically of WIC, for example, versus food stamps. And how is it that the rules for WIC, that's the Women, Infants, and Children program that gives low-income women with children under the age of five vouchers to buy what we would define in the public health community as nutritious foods. How is it that the rules of those two games are different? Well, I think you have to look at kind of the origins of of the food stamp program, which really came out of the 1930s and came out of uh, efforts to support farmers. Uh, It's really supporting the poor the nutritional interests of the poor were, were uh, secondary to supporting farmers. But ultimately, I think what, what the food stamp program has, or SNAP program as it's known, known as, has evolved into, it's really an income support program, uh, except that people aren't given cash. They're given essentially debit card to buy food. So it is something that, uh, again, it, it's I call it an income support program and nutrition programs close. So it's really not so much about nutrition, even though it has a, the name of the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. Um, it, it is the best program the country has to redistribute income. That's really what it's about. The WIC program, on the other hand, is, is much more of a nutrition program insofar as it provides its, its recipients with certain foods that have a high nutrition density and are essential for the growth of kids and babes and, and for pregnant moms. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're, they're just very, they have different, very different purposes and different, um, different structures. I think what a lot of critics would like, I think a lot of critics would like to see the SNAP program become more like the WIC program, mm-hmm. uh, in that it's much more of a nutrition program. 
but that's not where it's coming from. Mm-hmm. What would you like to see? I'd like to see that SNAP, WIC, school lunch programs, all those federal food programs be used to support not not only better nutrition, not only more income for for low-income folks, but also that they support more of a, a community-based, decentralized, democratic economy. And that means getting money not just into the pockets of Walmart and ConAgra and Kraft, but into the pockets of small farmers and small businesses and community groups so that we can build an alternative economy. I think, you know, with $100 billion a year going into into those programs, it can be a huge boon uh, for a different type of economy. Mm-hmm. You've got another link on your Indiegogo website, and it's it's a section called Building the Bridge. And it was a piece that you wrote several years ago, but you talk about food banks that are truly innovative. And I wonder if you would like to pull out some examples of what food banks could be doing to work towards bettering our communities and improving the social welfare of lower-income citizens. Sure. I will. Let me point out three. The first one is Oregon Food Bank. Again, I said I'm, I'm a big fan of OFB. They have been very progressive in fighting for uh, minimum wage raises, in fighting for uh, a, a prevention approach towards hunger. They also do a lot of work in community food systems, and they have staff that is traveling around the state to try to build relationships and, and use food as a way to build community and build food access. Uh, I think that's that's one piece. Uh, second piece would be a group like the Capital Area Food Bank in Washington D.C. It operates a farm outside the outside town, operates food uh, farm stands within uh, underserved neighborhoods in the D.C. in, in Washington D.C. And the food from the farm is to those communities, uh, places where there are no supermarkets. Hmm. Um, and then the third one, I, I've been consistently impressed by the Santa Cruz Food Bank in California. They have refused to take soda, which is unlike most of food banks in the country. And they, you know, the executive director there, Willie Elliott McCree, believes that he can tell the soda companies, no, I'm not going to take your products, and what are you going to do about it? Because he holds the upper hand in, in those are in those negotiations. So, you know, that kind I like what I, I guess when you ask me what I'd like to see, I'd like to see the hunger movement exercise its collective power vis-a-vis corporations and tell them, you know what, we're not going to take your junk. And, you know, if you want us to take your money and you want to build your image and your reputation off of our backs, you need to change and you need to pay your workers better and you need to take care of these issues better so that you're not causing hunger, you're actually fighting hunger, and not in name but in deed. If food banks collectively said no to junk, what would happen from the producer side, do you think? Would there be less of those kinds of foods produced? No, I don't think there'd be less of those foods produced. Um, I think, you know, the food banks tend to capture the surplus, whether it's uh, products that are going bad on the shelves or products that, uh, you know, have a label misrun or, or the like or things that just can't sell. Uh, so I, I don't think that, I don't think there'll be less produced. I think things might just have to go into a landfill. Um, you know, I'm not a, a big advocate of throwing things away, but, you know, in some cases, maybe this stuff should be thrown away. 
Mm-hmm. I was just thinking if they couldn't get the same tax write-off, maybe that would be an incentive to produce less of those kinds of foods. Well, that, that's already happening in, in the sense of the, in the, the, the food industry is changing its practice its practices such that a greater and greater proportion of those products that, that they can't sell through the normal channels are going to salvage markets. So they're going to places like Grocery Outlet or they're going to uh, kind of secondhand stores where um, they can capture a little bit of, a, of their costs. Mm-hmm. Well, there are a couple of points that I thought were extremely important in the building the bridge section. And I really liked food banks that were teaching people to grow and cook food. You know, that link between some sort of food independence and self-sufficiency that comes with growing our own food. And that's part, I think, of the solution. You know, looking at it through a public health lens and one of self-sufficiency and dignity I was talking to LaDonna Redmond uh, several months ago, and LaDonna has, of course, is with the Institute of Agriculture and Trade Policy, and we were talking about, you know, what does a good food system look like? And she said, we don't really know. We haven't sat down and had this visioning process yet of what we would like to create community by community. And I thought that was a really good point because it's been such a top-down kind of system. You know, and I... I I would disagree with her a little bit. I would say, and I've done a lot of visioning exercises with communities around the country, and what consistently comes out in those discussions is the need for increased linkages, the need for increased connections between members of the community uh, and, and parts of the community. And by that I mean that the farmer, local farmers need to be connected to local schools, to the local restaurants, the individuals need to be connected to each other. Et cetera, et cetera. That building that web of connections is, um, and it's much a much more resilient web, one that has kind of greater, uh, what sociologists call social capital, what greater sense of of, ne- of networks of communities, is something that uh, is essential to a more sustainable food system, and one that that is largely missing uh, from many of our communities. Mm-hmm. One of the chapters that will be in your book that I really want to highlight is this idea of capturing babies in the river. And it sounds like a horrible analogy, but it's one that we use in public health to describe how we we catch babies in the river, but we never question or we fail to question enough how they're getting in the river. So it's chapter four, and it's contradictions of food banking, catching babies downstream. And I hope that people will find in your book not only solutions through charity, but looking farther upstream to ask, why is it that we have hunger in the first place? Exactly. I think that, 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 that if that anything encapsulates what I'm, uh, what I'm trying to get at, I think you, you nailed it, Melinda. It's uh, really thinking about prevention and about how to address hunger before it even begins. It's getting away from charity and moving into the government, into kind of more of a government role as well. Well, I want to thank you for being my guest, of course, but I also want to thank you for being my colleague in the fight for a good food system. I want to thank you for all of your work in the good food movement, and I want to thank you for your leadership at the Community Food Security Coalition, and most important, I want to recommend your book, Hunger Incorporated. And once again, it's Indiegogo backslash hunger dash incorporated and we'll have that link available to our listeners on our website. Andy, thank you again for being my guest. <laughs>
Sure. Thanks for having me. You're a wonderful interviewer. Well, thank you. And in closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios by Dan Hemmelgarn in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you again, Andy. Thank you.